All right, Galatians chapter 5 tonight, and if you want to turn there, we're going to get to Romans chapter 14 in a couple minutes, but we're going to start there in Galatians chapter 5. So let's take a step back and review here a little bit. Obviously, we're a Baptist because we believe that our doctrine is right, and um, we are not ashamed to call ourselves Baptist because... We've, we think that not only is our doctrine right, but it's important enough to be emphasized, and because we believe it's, really, it's intellectually dishonest, or it's spiritually bankrupt to refuse to label yourself as a church. Um, these non-denominational churches out there, many of them are associated with something, uh, with some kind of denomination anyway. Um, lots, of the denomina- lots of the churches around here that go by such and such church are affiliated with the denomination, but for whatever reason, they don't want to claim that denomination, and so they just don't say that. But I think it's spiritually bankrupt to do that. But as Baptists, we share certain doctrinal beliefs with, uh, with a wider fundamentalist world, and beyond that, with every evangelical who, who believes in salvation by grace through faith, but these are the Baptist distinctives. There's some, some doctrinal beliefs that are distinct to us, and that's why we call them the Baptist distinctives. So we're using the acrostic Baptists, and we've been through four of them now. So let's see if you can say them without, without putting it up there yet. Uh, let's see if you can say what they are, and we'll do this together, all right? So the B is biblical authority. A, autonomy. P, priesthood of the believer. T, two ordinances. And what are the two ordinances? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Very good. Well, that brings us to our next distinctive belief tonight, which starts with an I, so we can continue on with that acrostic, and that stands for individual soul liberty. Individual soul liberty. And the basic concept of that is that each human being has a right to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience. Now, that's the, that's the general idea behind that, all right? We have the right to worship God. Every man has the right to, to hold such religious opinions as he believes the Bible teaches without harm or hindrance from anyone on that account, so long as he does not intrude upon or interfere with the rights of others by doing so and follows the church doctrine and policy. That is the definition, if you will, of individual soul liberty. But it has to be understood that every man, every woman has the right and is entirely responsible before God for their decisions, whether or not to accept Jesus Christ and become a Christian, uh, and what they do and what they believe after they become a Christian. Um, A a guy by the name of E.Y. Mullins, he was the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary way back in 1908. This was kind of before they... Uh, That was over 100 years ago, obviously, so it was kind of before they kind of turned off in a different direction. But he said, the great principle underlying religious liberty is this, God alone is the Lord of my conscience. So tonight we're going to talk about that, individual soul liberty. We're going to discuss more of what that means from a doctrinal approach, and then how does it apply to us as individuals uh, before God. So let's get right into it. Uh, First of all, then, would be the doctrinal approach. We're going to look at the doctrinal approach, and then we're going to look at the the practical approach, or the how do we apply that. But uh, turn over to Romans chapter 14. This was was really a revolutionary idea um, when the idea came around. Historically, your religion was determined for you. Um, whether that was based on your ethnicity or whether it was based on your parents or your government slash king, if you will, 
uh, you didn't really have a choice. If you were born into this area, this is the religion that you were. If you were born into this family, this is the religion that you were. If you were born into this kingdom, this is the religion that you were. You didn't have a choice. And we, we see that all the way up until, I mean, relatively recently, but we, we see that all the way up even, even, in, even in America when, when our country was being founded. The, the different colonies that, that uh, were being formed, the 13 original colonies, almost every single one of those original 13 colonies had a state religion. And if you were not part of that religion, then you, you, know, you were ostracized, you were, you were punished in a lot of cases. I mean, that's why we have the Chesterfield Jail right down there with several Baptist preachers that were put in jail for preaching uh, without a license uh, from the state. And so, uh, but Baptists, which, which honestly, I, I think, and, and, and more, one of these, uh, one of these uh, months, I guess you, I should say, I'm going to do a series on Baptist history and just go, go into, and we have so much of it right in this area. A, a lot of the Baptist history uh, starts here because this is where, you know, a lot of them settled early on. But uh, I believe that Baptists are the, are the, the world's greatest champions of religious liberty. Um, and, and really, to, really in liberty in general, but um, um, obviously it was just them for a long time, and now there's a lot of others that are on board with that as well. But, but Baptists have always held the position that no one can force you to believe or practice anything. And it's not just, oh, look at us. It, it is the very nature of what it means to be a Christian. You cannot force Christianity on somebody else. Now, there's a lot of Christian religions that have tried to do that. Uh, you look at the Catholic Church, you look at the Anglican Church, you look at um, a lot of these other church denominations that claim to be Christian that for years have tried to force that on other people. You are an Anglican or else. You're a Catholic or else. You don't have a choice. But it, it, it's, uh, that is only outward conformity to a religion. You cannot, you cannot force somebody to be a true Christian because true Christianity is in your heart. It's not, it doesn't have, I mean, obviously, if, if Christianity is in your heart, it's going to come out on the outside and it's going to be reflected on the outside, but it's very easy to conform on the outside. You cannot force somebody to believe something on the inside. So for all of those years that people said they were Catholics or Anglicans or, uh, you know, any of these other religions, you know, Congregationalists even was, was one of them. But, but for all those years, the people who said, yes, I am this, that was just them conforming to that on the outside. Whether they really believe that on the inside or not was completely up to them. And that's why we've always said that you cannot force uh, a belief or a practice on somebody. Uh, but you alone then are responsible to God for what you believe and practice. You, you, you cannot give account to God for me, and I can't give account to God for you. That's what individual soul liberty is all about. One of these days, you're going to stand before God, and you're not going to say, you're not going to be able to say, well, I, I went to that church, and that's what they told me, and no, and, and I can't say, well, uh, the people made me do it, right? I mean, that's what, that's what Saul's tried to say, right? We're all going to stand before God, and the decisions that we make we are going to have to answer to God for. Romans chapter 14 and verse number 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. 
Every single one of us. Not a religion as a whole, not a church as a whole. Every single individual person is going to give an account to God for what they did with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, for what they did with how they lived their life as a Christian. But I should be free to live just as I believe God wants me to live since I'm the one that has to answer to God for my life. That's what the individual soul liberty is all about. Got a few other verses that I want you to turn to, if you will. Turn over to John chapter 1. Because God, in his sovereignty, chose to enlighten every human being individually in relation to himself. Every single person that hears the gospel has an opportunity to respond to that gospel because of the light that God gives. Um, there's a lot of things that happen that cloud people's minds and cloud their understanding of what the gospel is. But God gives light to every single person. John chapter 1 and verse 9. That was the true light. Notice that that's capitalized because it's talking about Jesus Christ, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. God in his sovereignty chose to enlighten every human being individually in relation to himself. Go to Romans chapter 8. Because the individual born-again believer has within himself the Holy Spirit, which is fully capable to teach the truth of the Word of God to that individual, which is why you can have. I mean, obviously, we, we have what's called, what we would call major doctrines and what we would call maybe minor doctrines, some things, that, and, and every doctrine that's in the Bible is important. I'm not saying that it's, well, this is an important doctrine and this one is not, but there are some things that are that are, that are big doctrines, big foundational doctrines. Um, and for the most part, that's what the Baptist distinctives are. That's, we all agree on those things. But there are, there are things even within this church that we disagree on. Um, and, you know, certainly between churches uh, that we would disagree on. And we have the right to do that because the Holy Spirit living inside of us, uh, we all have the Holy Spirit. And, and, and the Holy Spirit is fully capable of teaching us what the truth is. And we see that in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 9. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Well, that's one of the things that, uh, that marks us, if you will, as Christians. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Now, here's another one that, that's even a little bit more um, straightforward, if you will. John chapter 14. Turn over there. John chapter 14 and verse number 26. And Jesus was getting ready to go back up into heaven, obviously. And he was, he was talking to his disciples. And at that point, they, just, they didn't understand um, exactly what was going to happen. I mean, they still, for, uh, even after Jesus rose from the dead, they thought he was going to set up his kingdom on this earth. But Jesus was talking to his disciples, and Judas in particular, here in this passage, in verse 26. But he says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So, Jesus obviously did all of the teaching that he could with the time that he had while he was here on this earth. And he said, hey, I'm going back to heaven, but the Holy Spirit is going to live inside of you. He's going to guide you into truth, and he's going to, he's going to call to remembrance the things that I've taught you. So the Holy Spirit, I mean, and, and we have, I mean, especially if you have a, a Bible that has the words of Christ in red, you see how much of the teaching of Jesus Christ we do have in our Bible and obviously, all of it comes from God, and, and um, Jesus is God. So technically, we'd say the entire Bible comes from him. But I'm talking about the direct words, the direct things that he taught. There's a lot of it. 
And so the Holy Spirit will help guide us into those things. It's not that there's no need for teachers or preachers in the church, because God certainly has placed uh, them in the body of Christ for that purpose. But God ultimately imparts truth to the heart of the individual, and that person is responsible as, as well as accountable for that truth. But God, in his sovereignty, chose to give each of us a free will. We can choose to reject him. We can choose to accept him. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 19. And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. God, God's fair to demand from each of us an individual account. He's given every single one of us light about himself and a free will to choose whether we will obey him or not. So, I mean, I'm, I would never say that God is unfair, but I'm, I'm, but I'm saying it's very fair for God to say, hey, every single one of you is going to give an account before me someday. I've given you light. I've given you a choice. You have to make that choice for yourself. But the choice that you do make has consequences. So you better choose right. You better choose well. And since those are true, then we are individually held responsible by God. Uh, then we have to, you know, we, we have the individual freedom of conscience to choose to accept or reject, obey or disobey or whatever we want to do. But know that we're going to give an account for that to God someday. Now, let me give you some, some statements, if you will. Uh, we, we've had a lot of people uh, over the years, Baptists over the years, that have given some great statements on this idea of individual soul liberty. Uh, J.D. Freeman was the pastor of the Bloor Street, it's B-L-O-O-R, Bloor Street Baptist Church in Toronto in 1905. He wrote this, our demand has, not been, has been not simply for religious toleration, but religious liberty, not sufferance merely, but freedom, and that not for ourselves alone, but for all men. We did not stumble upon this doctrine. It inheres in the very essence of our belief. Christ is Lord of all. The conscience is the servant only of God and is not subject to the will of man. This truth has indestructible life. Crucify it, and the third day it will rise again. Bury it in a sepulcher, and the stone will be rolled away, while the keepers become as dead men, steadfastly refusing to bend our necks under the yoke of bondage. We have scrupulously withheld our hands from imposing that yoke upon others. Of martyr blood, our hands are clean. We have never invoked the sword of temporal power to aid the sword of the Spirit. We have never passed an ordinance inflicting a civic disability on any man because of his religious views, be he Protestant or Papist, Jew or Turk or infidel. In this regard, there is no blot on our escutcheon, which is a great statement because that's exactly... That's, that is one of the things that sets the Baptist church apart, um, the Baptist doctrine apart, if you will, from every other doctrine. That we've never, uh, and if you go throughout history, the Anabaptists, the Waldensians, whatever you want to call them as, as they've worked their way across and became what we are today as Baptists, have never persecuted others for not being Baptist. Because you cannot, that, uh, again, it's, it's just the very nature of what it means to accept Jesus Christ. You cannot force somebody to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. If you have to force them to do it, then they're not doing it out of their own free will. They're doing it because you're putting a sword to their neck and telling them they have to. And then they're not really a Christian in any way. So what's the point of making somebody do that? But a great statement. And we often think of this as being a right guaranteed to us in the Constitution, you know, the First Amendment, the Bill of Rights, the freedom of religion, and 
you know, it says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And I'll tell you how we got there in the very last of the series that we're going to, uh, in, in the very, the S, the S is, is where we're going to talk about all that. But suffice it to say at the moment that it was clearly a Baptist influence over the founding fathers that, uh, that was responsible for what's known as the Establishment Clause. That first, that first article in the Bill of Rights that we have religious freedom that came at, uh, very much at the influence of the Baptists in America. But in other words, at its root, this isn't a right that's guaranteed to us by the Constitution. It's a right that's guaranteed to us by our Creator. And if you look at the, at the beginning of the Constitution, that's what it says, that every man uh, has these, these rights that are guaranteed not necessarily by a government, but by the Creator Himself. That these are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, right? And so the most famous Baptist in history, though English, I think firmly understood this principle as not an American constitutional one, but a biblical one. And uh, obviously Charles Spurgeon was never an American citizen, so he never fit under the American constitution. But he said this, we believe that Baptists are the original Christians. We did not commence our existence at the Reformation. We were reformers before Luther or Calvin were born. We never came from the Church of Rome, for we were never in it. But we have an unbroken line up to the apostles themselves. We have always existed from the very days of Christ. And our principles, sometimes veiled and forgotten like a river which may travel underground for a little season, have always had honest and holy adherence. Persecuted alike by Romanists and Protestants of almost every sect, yet there has never existed a government holding Baptist principles which persecuted others. Nor, I believe, any body of Baptists ever held it to be right to put the conscience of others under the control of man. We have ever been ready to suffer, as our martyrologies will prove, but we are not ready to accept any help from the state to prostitute the purity of the bride of Christ to any alliance with government, and we will never make the church, although the queen, the despot over the conscience of men. Consciences of men. Great statement. Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, had a way with words and was able to, and that's why I read that, but that's exactly, uh, it's exactly right. We've never had somebody uh, it, uh, or never had a church that persecuted others because there's no point in it. Now, if, Brian, why don't you come up here? I, I, I've got another little statement, if you will. John Bunyan wrote, wrote the book that more people have bought and read than any other book in history other than the Bible. Um, Pilgrim's Progress, but he wrote that book while he was in jail. But do you know why he was in jail? He was in jail because he refused. He was a Baptist preacher, and he refused to bow to the state's demand that he be licensed by the state to preach the gospel. So his conversation with his judge at his trial was in October, October 3rd of 1660. And the whole conversation is pretty lengthy, but I want you to hear this because it so clearly represents this, this, this Baptist distinctive. And so I, I've asked Brian to help me just to kind of break it up a little bit and, and read in a section of the transcript. Brian's going to read what the judge's statements were, and I'll read what John Bunyan said, all right? So Brian, go ahead and start. Mr. Bunyan, is this on? Yeah, yeah. sounds like it. Mr. Bunyan, you stand before this court accused of persistent and willful transgression of the conventicle act which prohibits all British subjects from absenting themselves with worship in the Church of England and from conducting worship services apart from our church. 
You come, presumably, with no legal training and yet without counsel. I must warn you, sir, of the gravity of the charge, the harshness of the penalty in the event of your conviction, and the foolhardiness of acting as your own counsel in so serious a matter. Are you cognizant of these facts, and do you understand the charge? I am, and I do, my lord. In truth, I hope you do. Now, I hold in my hand the depositions of the witnesses against you. In each case, they have testified that to their knowledge, you have never in your adult life attended services in the church of this parish. Each further testifies that he has observed you on numerous occasions conducting religious exercises in and near Bedford. These depositions have been read to you, have they not? They have, my lord. In that case, then, this court would be profoundly interested in your response to them. Thank you, my lord, and may I say that I am grateful for the opportunity to respond. Firstly, the depositions speak the truth. I have never attended services in the Church of England, nor do I intend ever to do. Secondly, it is no secret that I preach the Word of God whenever, wherever, and to whomsoever He pleases to grant me opportunity to do so. Having said that, my Lord, there is a weightier issue that I am constrained to address. I have no choice but to acknowledge my awareness of the law which I am accused of transgressing. Likewise, I have no choice but to confess my guilt and my transgression of it. As true as these things are, I must affirm that I neither regret breaking the law nor repent of having broken it. Further, I must warn you that I have no intention in the future of conforming to it. It is on its face an unjust law, a law against which honorable men cannot shrink from protesting. In truth, my Lord, it violates an infinitely higher law, the right of every man to seek God in his own way, unhindered by any temporal power. That, my Lord, is my response. This court would remind you, sir, that we are not here to debate the merits of the law. We are here to determine if you are, in fact, guilty of violating it. Perhaps, my Lord, that is why you are here, but it is most certainly not why I am here. I am here because you compel me to be here. All I ask is to be left alone to preach and to teach as God directs me. As, however, I must be here, I cannot fail to use these circumstances to speak against what I know to be an unjust and odious edict. Let me understand you. You are arguing that every man has a right given him by Almighty God to seek the deity in his own way, even if he chooses without benefit of the English church. That is precisely what I am arguing, my Lord, or without benefit of any church. Do you know what you're saying? What of Papists and Quakers? What of pagan Mohammedans? Have these the right to seek God in their own misguided way? Even these, my Lord. May I ask you if you are particularly sympathetic to the views of these or any other such deviant religious societies? I am not, my Lord. Yet you affirm a God-given right to hold any alien religious doctrine that appeals to the warped minds of men. I do, my Lord. I find your views impossible of belief. And what of those who, if left to their own devices, would have no interest in things heavenly? Have they the right to be allowed to continue unmolested in their error? It is my fervent belief that they do, my Lord. And on what basis, might I ask, can you make such a rash affirmation? On the basis, my Lord, that a man's religious views or lack of them are matters between his conscience and his God, and are not the business of the crown, the parliament, or even with all due respect, my Lord, of this court. However... However much I may be in disagreement with another man's sincerely held religious belief, neither I nor any other may disallow his right to hold these beliefs. No man's right in these affairs are secure if every other man's rights are not equally secure. 
I think the trial went on for a little bit longer, and they, they had a little bit more back and forth, but that's exactly the point that he was trying to make. Tried to get Brian to memorize that earlier, but he wouldn't, so I let him read it. But uh, great, great, um, great conversation, and that's it, the, the, the questions that the judge were asking, was asking of John Bunyan is exactly what a, a lot of people might ask when it comes to this idea of individual soul liberty. Well, what about, you know, what about the, the Satan worshipers? Should they be allowed to worship Satan then? Yes, they should. I mean, they're going to answer to God for it, but they should be allowed to worship God how they want to, right? The same thing with, with Islamic and, and any other religion. You know, I don't agree with them, and I know what's going to happen when they stand before God. God's going to condemn them for their, for their actions and for their beliefs, but they have a right to believe that because I can't force them to believe something else. I, I should and could do everything I can to share the gospel with them and hope that they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, but they have the right to worship God the way that they want to worship God. That's what individual soul liberty is all about. So let's, do some, let's, let's give some application here, and then we'll be done. i got a few verses that I want you to turn to with me, if you will, and then, and then we'll be finished up. So what does this mean? If we have this individual soul liberty, then what does it mean? Well, number one, you alone have the right to determine how you're going to believe and practice your faith. Nobody can tell you what you have to believe. Nobody can tell you how you have to practice what you believe. Number two, no person or government can force you to believe or practice what they think is right. right? There's been many governments that have tried to do exactly that. There's been a lot of churches that have tried to do exactly that. And that's why in this church, what I do to the best of my ability is preach the word of God as we see it in the Bible, and let the, let the Holy Spirit do the work in your heart. If I tell you you have to do something, then as soon as I'm not there to tell you you have to do it, you're, you're not going to do it anymore. If I tell you uh, you're going to be holy, you're not going to you know, do what, this thing or that thing, or you're going to do this thing or that thing, and okay, I'll do it because you're making me do it, not because you are convinced of it from the Word of God, then eventually you're going to not do it when that convincing is no longer there. So no person or government can force you to believe or practice what they think is right. And that's just as true for everyone else as it is for you. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. And we looked at this at the beginning, but I think it's, I think it's good for us to go back and look at it again because we need to see then what this does not mean. And this is a misconception, uh, I think, a lot of times of individual soul liberty. Number one, it does not mean that you and I have the right to practice our religion in such a way as it hurts others. Uh, damages their property or infringes on their liberty. Again, we see a lot of that today, right? Uh, you can't put a manger scene out there because, you know, I don't believe that. Well, you know, I have a right to put a manger scene in my yard if I want to, right? You, you, can't, you, can't, uh, you can't tell me that you're not going to bake a cake for my, my homosexual wedding, right? Well, I have a right to do that. I, if, if it violates my conscience against God, I don't care if it you know, if it hurts your feelings, right? It, it's not hurting you physically. It's not doing damage to you, um, not damaging property or, or doing anything else like that. I have a right to do what I believe is right before God. And so do you. If you want to refuse uh, to make a wedding cake for me because I'm marrying a woman instead of a, uh, instead of a guy, you have that right to refuse that if it's based on your religion, right? Now, I don't agree with it, but you have that right. Billy Sunday said, your right to swing ends where my nose begins. And that's, that's a great way to put it. Uh, this does not mean that you, you and I have the right to practice our religion in such a way as it hurts other people, damages their property, or infringes on their liberty. 
And uh, I, I, think, I think, you know, there's a lot of things, that, but this would be an extreme example, but let's say there's a Satanist out there who believes that, you know, uh, in order for him to practice religion, uh, his religion, the way that he needs to, he has to have a human sacrifice, right? Well, he doesn't have the right to go kill somebody because his religion demands that he has a human sacrifice. Uh, that is infringing on the rights of somebody else and infringing on their liberty, and that's, that, that's not what individual soul liberty means. It also does not mean that this liberty gives a Christian a license to sin. Galatians chapter 5 makes that very clear. Verse 13, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not that liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. See, wrong choices and sinful behavior are going to result in discipline from the Lord. Right? And perhaps even the church. We have the right as a church to practice church discipline, but every person is free to choose or, or do or believe what he, what he wants to, but he's not free to choose the consequences of those choices. Right? If I want to go out and sin and do whatever I feel like I want to do, I have the right to do it, but I'm gonna have, there's consequences for that. And especially if I'm a Christian and I go and sin against God and sin against what the Word of God says... I have the right to do it, but I don't have the right to choose the consequences of that sin. Only God does that. So that, that does not mean that this, this liberty gives a Christian a license to sin. It also does not mean that the individual can or should bring division to the body. You know, let, let me give you an example from, from nature. What happens when your appendix or your gallbladder rises up against the body? Right? The body makes the decision to have that removed. And, you know, I mean, obviously it's one of those, those are two things that you don't necessarily need. I've had my appendix out. Um, I think, I think it was 2013. Um, and I had just gotten home. We, we, um, we ran a bus route and we had just gotten home from dropping all the kids off. And it was, it was probably two or three o'clock in the afternoon. We went to Taco Bell and after we dropped all the kids off and I got back home and I'm sitting on the couch and I said, man, my stomach just does not feel good. You know, I thought it was Taco Bell that I'd eaten, you know? But it just kept getting worse and worse, and finally, then it started feeling like somebody was stabbing a knife into me. I told my wife, she was like, just let me take you to the hospital. And I had never, I had never been to the hospital before for anything, I don't think. And so when I said, all right, let's go to the hospital, then I knew it was, it was time. You know, but I, I, I rode in the front seat, hunched over, hanging onto that thing above me, and I got in there and said, we need to do surgery now. Your appendix are about to burst, you know. So they rushed me into, you know, the, it was just, uh, it was like an emergency surgery that they did and whatever. But your body, when, 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 um, when your appendix, your gallbladder, or other things, the body makes the decision to have them medically treated or even removed because that's the same thing that would be true in the church. Anytime a person does rise up against the church, they should expect severe consequences from God, right? Um, you don't have that... The, in, the, the, the individual soul liberty does not give you a right to bring division to the body of Jesus Christ. It also does not mean that the preacher isn't to preach forcefully what you are supposed to do, right? He should preach those things, but he can't, I can't force you to live right. I can't force you to do something, um, and I can't force you to follow something. I can't force you to not drink or not listen to rock music. I, can't, I can preach against those things. But you have a free will, and you can choose to do those things if you want to. But you'll answer to God for doing those things. doesn't mean that, that, well, if I have the individual soul liberty, I can do whatever I want to do. Then it doesn't matter what he says. You know, and, and, and again, I mean, you could take it that way if you want to. Um, but the reason I preach on the things that I preach on and, and preach in favor of the things that I preach in favor of and the, 
preach against the things that I preach against is because I find them in the Bible. And I want you to have the, the, the most blessed life that you can have before God. And when you ignore those things, then uh, you're going to answer to God for doing those. So I think uh, the last thing that we need to say with this is that along with that individual soul liberty comes individual soul responsibility. Let's look at a couple verses with this. So go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. You have the right. You have the right as in, in this individual soul liberty to do what you want to do. But with that liberty also comes responsibility. And number one, you're responsible for a personal assurance of salvation. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 12 says, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Right? I have the responsibility to be persuaded that what I am believing in is the right thing. And I believe that according to the word of God, I believe that, that, that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. And if he promises me a home in heaven, if he promises me assurance of salvation, then I'm, I'm going to believe it. But I have the responsibility for that personal assurance of salvation. Second Peter chapter 3, along with that individual soul liberty comes the individual soul responsibility, and I'm responsible for individual growth. This is a command that we find here in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. That's what that verse says. I'm commanded to grow in Christ. I'm commanded to grow in my knowledge of Jesus Christ. So I have the soul liberty. I can believe what I want to do, but I'm commanded and I have the responsibility to grow. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, I have that soul liberty, but I'm also responsible, number three, for searching out the truth. Acts chapter 17, verse 11, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Every individual has to seek insight, if you will, from, from members of like faith and practice, whether that's somebody that's present now, whether that's somebody that lived in the past and wrote about those things, uh, you know, which is where commentaries are helpful sometimes and where, um, you know, great conversation that we have sometimes when we're discussing these Bible things, it, it's, it's, uh, we're, we're responsible to prove what we hear. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, how do you prove all things? By the word of God. He says, abstain from all appearance of evil. These, th that was written to the individuals in a local church, right? We are responsible to make sure that the things we hear are coming from the word of God and not just coming from some guy's ideas, of, you know, that, that he's, you know, whatever. That's how cults get started a lot of times. Somebody just comes up with a bunch of ideas and starts preaching it and nobody goes back and checks the Bible to see if that's where it came from and they start believing it. And next thing you know, there's a cult out there that started and, and you know, they're just following blindly. We have the responsibility to search out the truth. And the, uh, Paul said in Acts chapter 17, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures to find out if what they were hearing was the truth. So, what can we draw from these doctrines? Well, number one, God alone is the author of liberty. 
Uh, it doesn't come from Congress. It doesn't come from the courts. It doesn't come from the Constitution. Those are great things to have to protect that liberty, but it comes from God. Psalm 119.45 says, And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. Uh, God alone is the author of liberty. But, but then, number two, we should grant that freedom to others, even if we find it hurtful. Um, I don't know if you remember this uh, a few years ago, but there was a big to-do about the Muslim mosque that they, you know, they wanted to put at ground zero. And a lot of people were violently opposed to it, and, and naturally so. I mean, it was, the, it was Muslims that attacked the World Trade Center and killed over 3,000 Americans. And then they wanted to put a mosque at ground zero to commemorate the, you know, those that had lost their lives uh, that were in the Muslim faith and so on. But they'll the answer to God for whether they reject or receive him. Uh, they have the right to worship how they see fit. I don't like it, but I should respect it. And again, I can't force them to accept Jesus Christ. Uh, they're, they're going to answer to God if they don't, but they have the right to worship God how they want to worship God. So let's hold that freedom fiercely no matter what pressure we face, whether that's peer pressure or employer pressure or government pressure or media pressure or public opinion or whatever it is. We have the right to worship God the way that we want to worship God, and we should always stand up and fight for that. One last passage I want you to look at, and we're done. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because above all, we have to remember that at its root lies the truth that we will one day give account to God individually. Uh, every individual is going to give an account for himself. And we already read 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. So then every one of us must give account of himself to God. That's about as plain as it can be that one of these days we're going to stand before him and answer to him for exactly the decisions that we made with our life. But we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll close with this, verse number 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, you're, you're free to build either way, right? That's what he said. God gives you that choice. You can, you, can, you can build on gold, silver, precious stones. You can build on wood, hay, or stubble. You have that right. Every man's work shall be made manifest, verse 13, for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Your building will be tested. You can build it out of the materials that you want to build it out of. You can make the choices that you want to make. You can do what you want to do, but it's going to be tested. You're going to stand before God. Verse 14, if any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned... He shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Our reward at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be based on how we exercised our individual soul liberty. Are you ready to give an account to God for your actions? We have that individual soul liberty. We have that right. <coughs> Excuse me. We have that right to, to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience. But we are going to answer to God for it. So does that give us a right to just, well, I can, I can worship God how I want to worship God. I'm going to go do what I want to do. You can, you can, but just know that it's going to be tried by fire. You're going to answer to God for your decisions and how you responded. Are, are Baptists the only ones that believe in individual soul liberty? No, we're not. Especially now, there's a lot of groups out there, a lot of denominations out there that believe, or sh I should say have come to believe, in individual soul liberty at the, uh, at the prodding of the Baptists that have gone before us that, that really uh, influenced that. Um, 
but when you take the, the, the total of everything that we believe, it is one of the things that makes us unique and has made Baptists unique from their, from their very beginning. So uh, great, great principle, great distinctive um, of the Baptist, individual soul liberty. Let's review. What's the B? Biblical authority. A, autonomy. P, priesthood of the believer. T, two ordinances, which are? Baptism and Lord's Supper. And now our new one, I, individual soul liberty. Good. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for allowing us to have the truth of the word of God. I pray that you'd help us to, to follow it as closely as we know how and that you'd give us light in these things, and uh, help us, as the Bible says, to rightly divide the word of truth. I pray that you'd help us not to err on these things. Thank you so much for our Baptist heritage, for those that have stood for these things for years and have gone before us and laid these foundations. I pray that you'd help us to carry them on, pass them on to the next generation. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.